Welcome to Season 5 of Purposeful Empathy, a show dedicated to amplifying the voices of people from around the globe who understand that the world needs more empathy and are doing something about it. Today's episode was brought to you by Grand Huron International, an on-demand coaching provider for individuals and companies. Thanks for watching the show. Enjoy. So welcome to a new episode of Purposeful Empathy. Today I'm joined by Xuan Zhao, who is a research scientist at the SPARC Center at Stanford University. And SPARC stands for Social Psychological Answers to Real World Questions. She studies how to help people connect and offer and appreciate different perspectives, foster meaningful conversations and positive interactions, and create inclusive environments. She also studies how people perceive and interact with robots and robotic technologies. Shuan was a postdoctoral scholar at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business and received her PhD in psychology from Brown University. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Anita. Really happy to be here. And thank you for the opportunity. I'm so excited because I often meet people who are very passionate about empathy, but have not done as much real research as you have. So when we're talking about an empathy expert, you fit squarely in that category. So I'm curious to start with, like, what draw, drew you to empathy and how did you first discover empathy in the first place? Yeah. And before that, I want to say I'm not a real expert yet. I'm becoming maybe one day. So I'm just starting this journey too. Now, I just got my PhD four years ago, starting my own research program. So getting there. (laughs) So you asked when I, how and how I started on empathy. I think I did a bit more reflection um, upon receiving your question. So I think it started when I was in college. Now, um, so before college, I was, you know, I have always been the only child in my family. So I got, I got lots of love and attention from the fa- from family and I did pretty well in school. And I'm also an extrovert. So I made lots of friends at school. But overall, I think I was just this nice person, well-liked person until when I was in college, of course, I still had lots of friends, but this close friend who, is also a very honest person. He told me that, you know what, sometimes you overlook how, uh, overlook other people's feelings. And I think he told me twice and that caught me off guard because that is not who I thought I was. I thought I was a nice person. So when it was time uh, to start PhD research and my advisor Bertram Malley at, St- at Brown, he um, provided a few different directions. And his one main research topic in his lab is how we understand other people's minds. So one topic he mentioned is perspective taking. So I thought, okay, maybe this is some, an opportunity for me to do some homework and to become a better person, to understand other people's feelings better. And that's how it started. Then, I mean, the, when I started my PhD, this, uh, my research was on visual perspective taking. I think it's a really elegant idea. It's the idea that, you know, for, imagine there is a number on the table. It might look like a six to you, but if I'm sitting across to you, um, it looks like a nine to me. So it's the idea that it's the same thing, but just based on where we sit uh, or we stand, we might see very different things and we might have conflict, uh, um, conflicts in how we perceive the same reality. 
I thought that's a really elegant idea. Uh, that's for uh, three, four years. And even my dissertation, I was focusing on visual perspective taking. But then um, the limit of visual perspective taking is that it's focusing on the simple idea of seeing things. But there are a lot more going on, like how other people think, uh, how, what are other people's feelings, and how, what are their values and beliefs. So um, that was in my fourth year in PhD that I started, oh, actually my third year in PhD, I don't quite remember this point, that I had this opportunity to propose a new course and I can pick whatever I want to, to teach. So I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll just learn by teach, um, learn by, by teaching. And then I proposed a course on empathy and leadership. This is at the Brown Leadership Institute and our director Kisa had no idea why she believed in me and thought I could do it. But then that's um, where I started actually doing more research and um, thinking more about empathy. So that's a long story I know and then I have more stories coming after you know teaching the class and postdoc but I'll just uh, end there. When I look at your research, um, you know, to prepare for this uh, conversation, you've covered already a lot of ground. So let's start back with the early days of your empathy research, um, where you were kind of asking a, a set of questions around how do people systematically misunderstand each other, right, mm -hmm. which you call empathy gaps. And you discovered a few things. So I'm just going to share the, the three things that I have picked up from, um, from what I know your research is about, and then maybe you could uh, share some more light and more color to it. So one of them is that people underestimate the positive impact of compliments. So I think that's fascinating. I love to compliment people like random people, you know, at a concert in the bathroom stalls, beautiful earrings, like whatever. My sister thinks I'm crazy, um, <laughs> but, but I don't underestimate the power of positive um, impact of compliments, but I'd love to hear more about that. That's the first one. The second one is um, underestimating people's willingness to help others and get joy from it. Now that I suffer from, I have such a hard time asking for help because I think it's going to be a burden. So I can't wait to hear what you have to say. And then the third is overestimating the negative impact or consequences of sharing your own set of failures and I think the work of Brené Brown has done a good job of kind of putting, shedding light on that. But yeah, so can you, can you talk a little bit about that whole body of research? Uh, so the idea is that we systematically misunderstand other people's minds. This is not my unique idea. It's actually from my co-author and my PhD advisor, as our postdoc advisor, Nick Apley. So he has a great book called MindWise, uh, the idea is that how we misunderstand and misunderstand other people. So this is a research program he's been working on for two decades. I highly recommend, recommend his book. And so recently, uh, he has started uh, this new research direction about how we are not as social and pro-social as we should be for our own well-being and other people's well-being. So I re resonate with that idea a lot. That's wh where we, um, how we started working on com giving compliments. So before me, there was another uh, postdoc in his lab who, who, who was working on um, how we underestimate the positive impact of expressing gratitude. So 
Amit Kumar, who's now an assistant professor at UT Austin Business School. Um, so idea, so I was really inspired by his idea. I thought, okay, um, gratitude is something that people all know that that's what you should do. But compliments, at least in social psychology, hasn't been considered as pro-social behavior a lot. Many times when social psychology studied, it's more like flattery mm-hmm. and it's ingratiation. But I think it's not not quite about that. It really could be a little gift we give to other people like friends, family, strangers. Everyone appreciate being seen and appreciated by other people. So that's how I started working on compliment. And um, yeah, we have uh, a series of studies where we recruited uh, pairs of people who have known each other for a really long time. So on average, they've known each other for 10 years and they come to the study. One person wrote a set of compliments and predicted how the other person would feel when they receive the compliments or when they read the compliments. And then we measured, um, we uh, gave the compliments to the other person and they reported how they felt upon receiving the compliments. So what we found was that the expressors systematically underestimated how happy the recipients were. That's like a very uh, robust finding across different studies. Um, I imagine social media plays a huge role in how much a compliment matters these days, right? Because we're bombarded with toxicity um, and people who are disagreeing with each other and cutting each other down. And then, of course, the whole mediated culture of, you know, you must look beautiful and glamorous and have lots of, you know, bling. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm taken by what you're saying because... There's a practice that I have in my classroom. Tell me, you know, I'd be curious to hear your feedback on this. I had an older mentor, a man who's since passed on. And when we would get together and I'd ask him for advice, he was like 30 or 40 years older than me. He would say, Nita, you're better than you think you are. And he said, you're not better than anyone else, but you're better than you think you are. And that just always stuck with me. So now at the beginning of the semester, I actually make it a point if the class is not too big, like under 50 students, I'll literally walk around to each student and I'll say to them, you're better than you think you are. And I'll say it to the next student and the next student. And then on the last day of class, I'll say it again. And by the time we get to the the first time that I do it, students think I'm absolutely crazy. Okay. Um, but then by the end of the semester, we've created like a nice culture in the class. And I've got students that are really like weeping from the feeling because I think there's just such a, an absence of that in our culture. So I really, I think you're really saying the truth here. Well, thank you. And I, I really think that's a very touching story. And it's it matters so much to people when they know that other people believe in them right sometimes they even they don't believe in themselves or don't find themselves beautiful or competent or you know they you people are always very critical about themselves so i think it's, it matters a lot that we hear this uh, this kind of positivity and to your comment about social media, in our studies, people always wrote the compliments and the, the recipient always received the written compliment. I imagine it would be even more powerful if people can, you know, walk up to the other person and actually say it, it might create an even bigger impact than what we have measured in the study. But I would say that the benefit of writing compliments is that it doesn't constrain you you know, when we want to give another person a compliment in in person, you have to kind of overcome your hesitation and also your awkwardness. 
And of course, you have to find a moment to do that. You have to be in the same space. But you can just write a compliment and send it to the other person. So it takes down a lot of the, the, the constraints, um, you know, communication channels, et cetera. I think it's much more applicable. And we found the, reason, the finding with written compliments. So we hope that that's at least a, a conservative measure of how powerful this actually is. Well, you've natural. just... You have just given me a gift because, you know, how often are we standing in line for something, looking at our phones, and instead of doom scrolling, I can just send a compliment to a friend and just make it a practice and try to do that. So thank you for that. That's I really, really, that. yeah, I'll keep I you posted that. on how that goes. I'll keep you posted. Yeah. What about underestimating people's willingness to help others? Mm-hmm. This is a paper we are writing up right now. I'm going to submit this in a month, fingers crossed. So in this project, we explore the idea that people often underestimate other people's pro-sociality because even though we are oftentimes driven by our pro-social, you know, pro-sociality or our, our desire to help other people and make a difference to other people, that's how, what fundamentally drives our cooperative nature as a species. But when people think about other people's behavior, there is this so-called norm of self-interest. It's idea that people believe that, other, especially in the U.S., uh, believe that other people act out of their self-interest. So this is a really interesting idea because if you think about, like, imagine I approach you and ask if you would be willing to have a conversation with me and maybe we let's make a podcast episode together. Um, you are probably very willing to help me out like, and to, to create this together, but I would, according to our research, underestimate how willing you are and how happy you would be to help me. Or if you imagine like in, in a street, when you want to get a picture taken, like maybe ask a stranger to help you take a good picture. If you are approached by another person and they ask you if you can help them take a picture, you'll probably be very happy to, like, of course. But if you kind of predict how willing another stranger is to help you, people actually often have some doubts and they, underestimate how willing other people are to help them, overestimate how much inconvenience the other person would feel. And I've practiced admire that research in my own life, at least when asking strangers for photos. So <laughs> you've just broken free from that pattern. You're unafraid now to ask people for help? Well, not quite like that. I have to overcome the kind of fear. Um, it's something quite powerful that you, you're just... Now, I have to remind myself that, you know what, I tend to underestimate, and like most people, how willing other people, how pro-socially motivated other people are. So you have to ask. So That's such an optimistic perspective on humanity. You know, it's so different from some years ago, there was a very famous book called The Selfish Gene. And now oh, there's yeah. a book called Humankind. I think I have it right up above me by this guy, Rutger Bregman, which I'm in the process of reading, which is basically debunking all this idea that we're so selfish and out for ourselves, where in reality, we we go to great lengths even for strangers. I mean, just think about anybody who's an organ donor. Like, you know, we are, we do care about each other. That's at least my baseline about humanity. So it sounds like you ha- uh, believe the same. I think there has been a real shift in academia about how we think about the human nature. Um, 
the selfish genes and also thinking from the 70s. I think there's also historical context to that. And now, you know, Tomasello's research on and his book on why we cooperate, and also the, the book you mentioned, and other researchers like Jamil Zaki, The War of Kindness. So it's been a real shift in how we think about um, and, and human nature and discovering the pro-sociality, the cooperative aspect of human nature. Anybody who's been watching or listening will be really disappointed if I move on to a new set of questions without getting to the overestimating the negative impact of sharing failure. So I'll just allow you to speak to that one as well uh, before we move on. Absolutely. That is the newest project among all the projects I've been working on at Booth. So, so far, we only have two studies um, to, to unpack, the, to kind of scratch the surface of this idea. What we did in the study is that we asked strangers, um, pairs of strangers in the lab. So one person would be assigned to either, either talk about a failure story or a success story that has recently happened in their life. And they predicted how the other person would see them in terms of competence and warmth. So we found that people, when they talk about a failure story rather than a success story, they're more likely to expect the other person to perceive them as less competent. So. And then they also underestimate how warm the other person perceives them, et cetera. But competence is an even bigger effect. So that is, seems to be maybe partly the reason why people don't want to share their failures because they don't want to be seen as quote unquote losers or you know, failures. But in reality, we all understand that you, you don't succeed all the time. You, everyone's fail and struggle at some point. So I think the listener, they were actually very, um, they, they can totally relate with the story and they, they did not see the, the speaker as harshly, near as nearly harshly as the speakers perceived, expected them to see. And I can imagine the application of that research finding, like, for example, in interviews, how people would be afraid to talk about things that they, you know, completely failed at or what it didn't work out or whatever calamity they want to use as a word. Um, And how in describing what happened to them and some of the lessons learned or some of the, you know, how they grew or, or how they see the world differently, that allows some color for the person's personality to come out that would actually be very, very helpful to the person doing the interview to kind of get a sense of the person's belief system or um, sense of ethics. So I think, you know, yeah, we're so afraid of being harshly judged by others that we are always putting out our best foot forward when in fact, you know, showing some of our the dimensions of who we are as human beings actually may serve us to develop deeper relationships more quickly, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I love the point, but I also need to say, since we have only two studies, I've thought more than this than I can do at this moment. So one caveat I would think is um, maybe more successful people would be, they would be more okay to share their uh, failures than, you know, people who are, Lexus, Lexus, uh, less successful or has uh, mm. don't yet have a track record of being able to do, I don't know if this makes sense. Um, like in the, there is an old uh, idea from social psychology called Pratt-Fall effect. The idea is that 
a very competent per, uh, person uh, in an interview. They set it up in a, I think, an interview context. Uh, the person they either either flounder and spill coffee on their shirt or not. So this is like a minor failure. But this person either performed pretty well before this kind of this flounder or this person was, you know, fumbling in their interview did really badly. So it turns out that if this is a person who has a track record of being capable, and then that kind of, that accident actually humanized them. But if that person is, you know, also just fumbling in their interview, mm. then they didn't reflect them well. So I think what I would suggest is that for successful people in our um, society or, you know, or leaders and people who are more advanced in their career, they should be more willing to talk about their failures. Because first of all, there is nothing to lose. Yeah. And it only makes them more human. And the, the young, younger generations, you know, people who are still trying to figure things out will, will really benefit from that too. It's like no one... They, they, they are now born with all those success and everything. So if anything, I think I would encourage more successful people to share their failures. Great, great. Super add on. I'm glad that you add that qualifier. Yes, because um, context matters and history matters. So yeah, it's probably a little bit more risky for people who are green um, entering the workforce to take, you know, risks about, you know, being very vulnerable. So thank you for that. Um, Let's move on to the research that you've done around perspective taking, okay? Mm -hmm. So you've looked at how conversations can help people better understand each other's perspectives. You've also looked at like, when do we actually take each other's perspective? So I guess that suggests that there are times that we're less uh, able to do that. And then Mm -hmm. can we, which is a really interesting conversation, um, can we empathize? Do we empathize with robots? Can we take their perspective? So all of that work. I love it. I guess I'll start with the second question. You ask, when do we take other people's perspectives? So um, I started that research question in, in my dissertation. So the idea, again, is visual perspective taking the same number you can see it from your perspective or another person's perspective. So what we've, uh, we, we found in, the, in, in our research is that if you ask, we call this like easing into another mind. If you think about the fact that that person has a mind and they are maybe seeing the world differently from you, then you are more likely to consider and adopt their perspective. So I think the lesson I take away from that project is that acknowledging the mind behind that person is the first step. And that seems, um, even though visual perspective taking itself is kind of limited in the phenomenon that we are not trying to read numbers from each other's perspective all the time, it's nevertheless important to recognize the humanizing power there. If and and I think the opposite side is that on, for example, on internet, or you know, when, when you have when you have a distance from the other person, you stop thinking about the fact that they have a mind, that they have feelings, and then that's where you, when you stop taking their perspective and you are just in your perspective. So that's what I take from that line of research uh, from my dissertation, and. Um, the first question is, uh, what, what was it again? Sorry. <laughs> so how can conversations help people understand each other's perspectives, right? 
Yeah, so that is actually my postdoc work. So that's why I started with a second question. In my postdoc, um, I also collaborated with the Second City. So um, uh, uh, Second City, many people have um, probably know this. Uh, they, they have uh, their comedy club, and this, but they also have Second City Works, which is to use improv for training purposes. And from uh, we, we are the CDR, the Center for Decision Research at Chicago, collaborated with them to design a series of workshops. Um, it's been absolutely fun designing those workshops. And one exercise that I loved and found really interesting is what we call thank you because. So it's embedded in one workshop about understanding and appreciating each other's differences. And the idea is that uh, when you sometimes see people who are different from you, who might have different preferences, different beliefs, different values, oftentimes, and also maybe you have some disagreement there, uh, sometimes we want to, 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 to tell that person why they, the way they are doing things uh, is wrong or uh, why we disagree with them and there might be holes in their logic and they really should think differently or do something differently. But in this workshop, because we want people to focus on appreciating the differences and withhold your tendency to just criticize or debate, we teach this exercise uh, inspired, inspired by yes and. So this uh, a new exercise called Thank You Because is when you hear something you disagree with or someone is willing to offer how they perceive the world differently from you or do something differently from you, you first take the time to thank them for something useful that they are bringing to the conversation. Could be that they are adding a useful uh, viewpoint you have never thought about, or it could be that their willingness to engage in an open conversation itself is worth acknowledging and thanking. So that's the idea that you first express your appreciation and then you go uh, move on to express your uh, opinion. So we are not asking people to suppress their true beliefs, but we ask people to just acknowledge the other person's, uh, the value of the other person's bringing to the conversation. And then lots of participants, um, so people come to our workshops, uh, they're ex they experience the, the thank you because exercise and also a no because exercise is the idea that when you hear something, tell the other person no and why you, you think that's not the right way to think about it. So we contrasted these two approaches and we found that uh, lots of people experienced feeling a lot more common ground when they use the thank you because approach to discussing disagreement and differences. So that is the idea. And then uh, we inspired by this exercise, which is already in the workshop. We also took it um, to the lab and then studied how people actually respond, like recorded their conversations, see what they say, and also give them surveys at the end. And they reported how collaborative they felt the conversation was and how, how um, reasonable they perceived the other person and how much common ground they perceived. So overall, we found uh, increase in all these measures using the thank you because, because uh, thank you because approach compared to the no because approach. I have two final questions for you. You've been super generous with your time. Thank you so much, Yuan. Um, I want to ask about the robots. Yes. Is it possible to take the perspective of a robot? Can we have empathy with robots? What's what's going on in that field? Oh yeah, so empathy, we all know is a really big word. There has been a lot of research on the definition. 
So, you know, there is a cognitive component, there is a emotional component. On the cognitive component, I have research on taking robots visual perspective. So the one sentence conclusion is that the more human-like a robot looks, the more we take their visual perspective. And I think this makes sense because it's kind of, we are just projecting the kind of psychological mechanisms we have for interacting with other peoples to interacting with things that look Mm human-like. So I have a, a short talk on my website explaining that project. But then empathy has this emotional component and becomes more complicated with robots. Uh, Well, first of all, I don't think robots have emotions and most people don't think robots have emotions. So I have a different project on mind perception with robot that people perceive the robot to be capable of, you know, moving around, hearing things, but they don't perceive the robots to have emotional capacity of feeling happy, feeling tired. That's not just a, it's not a thing, quite a thing for robots. So then that becomes complicated. Can you feel for a robot even, I mean, no, can you feel with robots even though robots don't have feelings? I don't think so, but I think people can feel for robots. So some people will say feeling with is empathy and feeling for is maybe sympathy. It's also complicated there, but you can feel for robots when, for example, this Boston Dynamics robot is four-legged and uh, animal shaped, and then someone kicks the robot and people are like, oh, yeah, like your face. I love that. Perfect. That's the reaction. People are like, poor thing, right? You kind of feel bad for the robot even though maybe the robot doesn't, probably the robot doesn't have any feelings. So um, I think what that suggests is that instead of asking whether people can empathize with robots or how can we give robots emotions so that you know they are empathic, it's more important to study, I think to study the concept of perceived empathy. That is, we think robots, robots can say certain things that make you feel that they have empathy for you. It's kind of a twisted idea, but instead of trying to make real, really empathic robots and it never worked because you, you, you don't empathize with robots, the robots, they also don't have feelings they can't feel with you. Robots might say certain things that make people feel that the robot is feeling for, with you. And it's like, you say something, I had a really bad day and then Siri might say, Oh, I'm so, really sorry to hear that. And if Siri wants to go crazier, it's like you tell uh, Siri about a colleague, a conflict, and Siri could say, I would be angry if I were in your situation too. Siri would never feel angry. But it's more about what the, the, the robots can say and make people feel that, oh, there is someone who's understanding me and empathizing with me. I don't that, know. And, that and daily compliments, right? To tag it back to the original conversation, Siri could be programmed to give a lot more compliments that could be useful, right? In our daily yeah, life. Totally. Hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, so, okay, I want to ask a, a final question about your research. And then I always close the interview with a, a more personal uh, story. So the question I want to ask is based on all of your research, what recommend- recommendations do you have uh, to cultivate more empathy in ourselves and in society more generally? Wow. Mm. Um, one is coming back to the idea of conversations, making, uh, I think 
talking with people is, is something we should do more often and talking to people from different walks of life. Um, and, and I know this sounds really generic, but I think a lot of times we have misunderstanding because we don't talk enough and we are all talking with similar-minded people and that creates a problem. I know there's no quick fix for this, but I think it's conversation really matters. And also a shout out to Nick Apley's research in MindWorks, uh, sorry, in MindWise. He um, mentioned this idea of perspective getting versus perspective taking. The idea is that when you try to take the other person's perspective, you oftentimes make mistakes. What if you just get their perspective by asking them and then talking with them? You usually get a better idea of why they do certain things and they a lot of things suddenly seem more rational, make more sense. So I think that just says a lot about the power of conversations. Beautiful, beautiful. Makes me think of another conversation that I had, but we'll I'll tell you about that offline. So as a final um, uh, you know, off-ramp, I've been getting into the habit of asking people at the end of the show if they can remember a time, um, it doesn't have to be anything big, although something big may come to mind, when you were on the receiving end of empathy and what that meant for you. So does, do you have anything that comes to mind? Yes. Yes. So I, um, I think my boyfriend is a very empathic person. Lots of things I... Um, I think he helps me become more empathic. So when I'm tired or, you know, when I have a bad day and I talk it through and he, he is the kind of a dream boyfriend who are, he's, we recently got engaged. I just told you. So my fiance now, he is not rushing to make a judgment or making a recommendation. And then he will just listen and, pay close attention and I think that matters a lot sometimes and oftentimes I am now looking for a solution lots of problems are hard to to figure out at work and also in life and I'm I appreciate that he's there for me to to just listen and to feel with me and I think that just feels good and it's something I can count on having pretty much every day, which makes my life so much better. Just having this one person who's really empathic in my life. Well, that's a beautiful shout out to your fiance. I wish you all the best. Thank you so much for spending uh, this time talking about your research and uh, how important empathy is uh, in in our lives and in the world. And uh, I really appreciate your time, John. I also appreciate this time and the conversation. Great. Thank you. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. See you next time at Purposeful Empathy. Yes. What if you had access to your own council of coaches to help you break free from your thinking clutter, or make an important decision, or liberate you from whatever's holding you back? At Grant Huron International, you get to choose the coach of your choice from any place, any time. Visit GrantHuronInternational.com and harness the power on-demand coaching.